Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm your host, Bryce Clinton. It's a really exciting show this week, and we're extremely fortunate to have on the program with us Dr. Andrew Kirsten. Dr. Kirsten is a double board certified physician in orthopedic surgery and orthopedic sports medicine. He also provides individualized care to athletes of all ages. Dr. Kirsten specializes in disorders of the shoulder, knee, and elbow, but cares for a full spectrum of orthopedic and sports medicine-related issues. Dr. Kirsten completed his undergraduate education at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, which is where he and I actually met. He earned his medical degree at Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis. From there, he went on to complete his residency in orthopedic surgery at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan, one of the top-ranked hospitals in the country. Dr. Kirsten then finished a one-year fellowship in arthroscopy and sports medicine at San Diego Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. During his fellowship training, Dr. Kirsten worked with the San Diego Padres and San Diego State University with their football and soccer teams. Dr. Kirsten now lives in Asheville, North Carolina, and is in private practice there. Welcome to the show, Andy, and thanks for, thanks for being here with us. Thanks a lot for having me, Bryce. I really appreciate it. It's, it's quite the background. Can you sort of give us a view? And, and like I said, you know, you and I have known each other for quite some time now, but can you give us a view of how that sort of traversed from, from Purdue onto medical school and, and where you are today? Yeah, so I, I have luckily kind of decided early in life what my goal was. I didn't have like the same search throughout a lot of my life, which made things easy, but I uh, had an interest in medicine early. Um, when I started at Purdue, it was kind of the goal all along to go to medical school. So um, obviously that happened for me, got into medical school. And about the time I was going from college to medical school and at IU, I was starting to learn more about orthopedics, had some family members in the industry and um, just found that something very interesting, you know, playing a lot of sports. Um, orthopedics probably from a medical standpoint touches the sports realm the most. And so it tends to attract a lot of, you know, um, medical students that are interested in athletics and sports. So um, getting through medical school, then I matched into an orthopedic surgery residency. And then that was, that's a five-year program for pretty much everybody. And then basically what happens for most orthopedic surgeons is they're given the opportunity to, you know, you could go right into practice out of residency and do general orthopedics, which kind of encompasses a little bit of everything. Um, But most people nowadays will go into a fellowship and there's different fellowship options. And again, kind of keeping with the sports realm, I did went in to do a sports fellowship, um, which focuses a lot on um, there's different degrees with the different programs, but you know, how much sports interaction there is with college, professional, high school teams, um, and then taking care of a lot of athletic and sports injuries. And, you know, uh, as, as the, as the lay person like myself, you know, someone who's obviously interested in sports, we hear about orthopedics and orthopedic surgeons and, and because of the, like you said, the relation to sports, but it sort of background, can you sort of describe what is involved in, in the orthopedics and orthopedic surgery and so on? Well, from, you know, from an orthopedic surgeon, I mean, most of what we do is care of the bones and joints, you know, so from a medical field where somebody breaks a bone in a car accident, we're the ones taking care of it. Um, There are, you know, people that do spines as part of the spine realm touches into orthopedics, but um, we're the ones that replace people's shoulders, replace people's knees, replace people's hips. Um, When somebody's, you know, grandmother breaks their hip, um, we're the ones that fix that. we also do, you know, a lot of arthroscopic surgery. When you hear people tearing their ACL, we're the ones reconstructing an ACL. We're the ones fixing rotator cuff tears. And then um, 
so pretty much any surgery in the limbs, you know, um, or kind of stay out of the abdomen, but anything that has to do with bones and tendons and muscles and ligaments. Right. Which is obviously why we're here in the sports realm, like you mentioned, we hear about this a lot because it is so involved with that. And you, in your background, you had time again at that fellowship that you mentioned in San Diego to work directly in sports. What was that sort of experience like? Well, it was, I mean, a lot of fun. I mean, we had a little bit of the exposure in uh, Michigan at Beaumont. I worked a little bit with uh, a couple of the colleges and even the Detroit Lions somewhat. And then in fellowship, we were a little more involved with it. So most of our role, you know, the our program, a couple of the doctors we worked with were the team physicians for uh, San Diego, the Padres and in San Diego State University. So we were given the opportunity to kind of, you know, fill roles there. So a lot of it would be, you know, just being present at games, um, being there in case somebody got hurt. I mean, a lot of it is just, um, you know, you get there early, they've got guys that are hurt and they want the doctors to check out. So you're pretty much an on-site medical clinic. Um, you're evaluating them and determining, okay, does this patient, you know, does the player need an MRI? Do they need x-rays? Do they need to go to PT? Like, is this someone that's going to need surgery? Um, you know, sometimes if it was something more significant then the player would see us in the office, but a lot of it can be done there at the field or, um, at the stadium. And then, you know, we would, we got to spend a week at, you know, spring training. So we were there during doing the physicals for all the guys coming through at spring training and, you know, pretty much the loan provider at the time, taking care of problems and issues that pop up during the week. So it's a really interesting relationship you bring up because you hear about it a lot from a team doctor perspective, um, you know, and you hear about it in college and the pros, I guess from that relationship to help us understand, is the team doctor typically somebody that is embedded with that team? Or is it sort of like you mentioned outside, you know, medical practices that come in and, and work with those teams or, or how does that relationship work? Yeah. I mean, I think in a, I don't know, maybe in modern days, it's gotten a little more complex because it is, you know, traditionally the original orthopedic sports guys that kind of grandfathered everything and started it were, you know, Hey, we're going to be the team physicians for your program. And they were kind of, you know, it helped them develop a practice and develop a name. And it certainly has bolstered the careers of a lot of, you know, there's famous guys like, you know, Dr. James Andrews and Dr. Neil Elitrosh that, you know, have a name because of their involvement with sports and athletics. But it has gotten to a point now where, you know, most colleges, most professional teams are all going to have a team doctor in an ideal setting. They would go out and say, Hey, you're the you know, best surgeon we have in this area. We want you to take care of our athletes. Um, but, and that does still exist to some extent, but a lot of it now is even just contracts between health systems and a team, you know, there's advertising dollars that come into play. So one health system in a city, may make a larger offer to be the team physicians for a program. And so then that, that, you know, you could have been the team doctor there for 20 years and your health system, you know, moves on from it. And then, um, you know, somebody else is coming in. So a lot of times that, you know, some of these doctors are paid um, by the team, but in general, it's almost opposite. It's almost like the, the clinic or the physician or the health system to an extent is kind of paying from an advertising standpoint, to be there and be the doctors for the team. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And obviously because it is sort of a marquee thing, right. To Mm -hmm. be involved with those teams and and have that. And you're right. The the first name that always jumps to my mind is, is Dr. James Andrews. Isn't he the team doctor for both Alabama and Auburn? (laughs) I believe so. And to some extent, the Washington football team. 
Oh, interesting. I didn't yeah. know that part. Does so he think, focus you know, on what's his area of focus? So he, I mean, he's sport, he does sports, you know, hmm. so he's done, you know, like originally, you know, I, when I, I've met him and, um, you know, when we interviewed there for fellowship, actually, you know, his big thing is being available and, you know, he kind of came up and made sure all these teams knew like, Hey, if you've got a problem, if you need somebody to be seen, I'm your guy, I'll see him, I'll evaluate him. And it became an easy pipeline for people to say, all right, we, you know, we want this guy's expertise. And then that's where the team relationship does benefit, you know, the doctor to a certain extent, because if you build up a credibility in the industry people know about you and then all of a sudden you you start getting referrals like yeah i saw this guy you should go see this guy and um so there, i mean there is that your relationship where yeah that the team doctor is probably the main person evaluating the athlete initially and then there are certainly times you know i think probably higher the profile of the athlete where then you know the agents recommending hey why don't we go get another opinion you know, because the, there is there is notably some conflict of interest, unfortunately, with, you know, a doctor that's for the team and a independent contractor or athlete that's, you know, wanting to stay healthy and produce well, but also not hurt themselves permanently. Right. And I think that's a, it's an interesting point you bring up because you talked about the evaluation. Right. And there's sort of that whole. I guess, process of the care piece, you know, and the evaluation. Is that the biggest part of what? you do right and, and i guess what i'm getting at is how often does it end up at that end you perform a lot of surgeries today and have in the past and but how often does it end up at that sort of performing surgery piece well i mean most of the time you know depending on your practice somebody's really established maybe at a point where they're kind of you know they've got entry-level providers that are seeing like bumps and scrapes and then as you get further along you're pretty much only seeing people that are at that surgery point but a lot of injuries don't need surgery. You know, it's obvious if there's a broken bone and something's deformed or popped out of the skin that, yeah, it's going to need a surgery. But in a sports realm, a lot of it is non-operative, you know, and it's, that's, you know, I feel a lot of my job is just relating to the athletes. There's a lot of factoring in their desires. Um, in my practice now, we take care of a large number of high schools and middle schools in our area. And so a lot of the logistical issues of, okay, you play basketball and you play baseball. You know, if you do a surgery now, you're going to miss this season. You're going to miss that season. You're going to, you know, here's, you're going to have time to rehab if you wait and do this. So there's a lot of kind of logistical things that go into play with it. And I look at it as, you know, the, when you're dealing with sports and these injuries and even these like high profile guys that are team doctors, you know, like they're not there maliciously they're, they're doing what they feel is best and what's right for the patient. But, you know, you want to have a good relationship with the athlete, you know, you want them to feel comfortable with your recommendation. And I tell them all the time, you know, my, my goal is for you to get better. I'm not necessarily here to make sure the, you know, your coach gets you back on the field faster. You know, I want, I want what's best for you as the athlete. So I think they just need to know that you're on their side and looking out for them. And, you know, in the sports realm, you can't, you can't get your feelings hurt if an athlete gets another opinion or goes to see somebody else. Cause it, it's always going to happen. But. Yeah. You mentioned, and when we think about it, obviously I think about it a lot from the pro perspective, right? Yeah. Professional athletes and, and you see the injuries and what happens and, and even college too. But you mentioned that there are an enormous amount of athletes, right? Athletes yeah. is a big encompass, you know, term that encompasses a lot, whether it's, it's high school athletes, middle school athletes, or even people like, 
that are our age now that are still trying to be active in those things. Do you look at those things differently? Meaning it's a really interesting point around, you know, I think back to my, when I was a kid, if I would have been hurt during basketball season, which was my least favorite sport, I certainly wouldn't have wanted to miss baseball season because I like, you know, those considerations don't happen with a college athlete or professional athlete. And so is the sort of approach to all those different levels different? I like to, yeah, for sure. Because I mean, I I like to kind of put all that information out to my patients and kind of get them to process all that information themselves. Because a lot of times they haven't necessarily thought that through either. And I think it helps me make a decision you know, kind of figuring out what their goals are going to be. Because again, the goal of a professional athlete that's getting paid a lot of money to do something, you know, at the end of a contract or mid contract is going to be different than, you know, a middle schooler that's got a lot of life to live and is probably not going to play professional sports, you know, in the, and that's where like in the high school zone, you know, I'll have a kid that it may be towards the end of football season and they don't play much, you know, and they're really into wrestling. And they get hurt and it's something where, yeah, they probably could go out there, but they'll limp and it'll hurt and, you know, may set themselves up for a prolonged recovery. I say, Hey, you know, like, do you really want to finish the season out? Like who are you, or who are you doing it for? You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for your coach. You're doing it for your parents. Or do you want to just kind of rest and rehab and recover and be ready to go for wrestling, which is what you really want to be doing. And I think once they, you know, getting that information out to them and allowing like everybody in the room to think it over is very valuable. But yeah, I mean, the goals and, you know, treating a professional or college athlete is completely different than, than, you know, I kind of real life middle school, high school, you know, weekend weekend warrior. Yeah. Yeah. Like ourselves, there's the economics that come into it, right. Too, Mm -hmm. from a professional athlete and and even the college athlete as well. And when it, gets to that and you mentioned this earlier and I, this may be a difficult question to answer in some senses but like there is a bit of a conflict of interest right from a team perspective from a you know athlete perspective get back on the field if they're in the middle of a contract or, or those types of things i guess the question is you know from us on the outside we don't see this that much are those things taken into consideration when they you evaluate somebody you know somebody is is in their junior year of college and could have gone out and gone to the draft or you know, they have one year left on their, their rookie deal and want to ensure that they, you know, get that larger contract after that. Are those taken into account by not only the athlete, but the team? I would, I mean, I would hope it does. You know, I think, um, you know, I don't think in, in my role, I, yeah, I can't just look at it only from an orthopedic or medical standpoint. I think you kind of have to factor those things in because the reality is, you know, if you're a professional football player, a running back, you've got a very short lifespan. And so it's going to make a big difference whether you play and like, if, you know, if they're going to get, if you're hurt and going to be out or they'll cut you and you lose all that money or do you push through and try to, you know, earn that new contract versus, you know, leagues where they have guaranteed contracts, it makes life a little easier for those guys. So um, it does get to be kind of dicey at times. And again, the team's desires probably are separate from sometimes the players. And I think that's where, you know, I think, probably the most high profile one recently was with Kawhi Leonard and the Spurs. And there was definitely a disagreement between the team and his camp in terms of whether he should be playing. And, you know, again, I have no knowledge of really what went on there, but there was certainly that drama was very much out in the open. Yeah. And and it is an interesting thing to see from, from this side, because 
on the, on the surface, you can think, well, yeah, there's th those things obviously play into it. But as you mentioned, right, you're trying to provide the information from a medical perspective to them, make the choices that, that are best for them. You know, one thing, Dr. Kirsten, that, that, that all of our guests we've kind of talked about, and we had Mike Schroeder recently from Athletico on, and he talked about at the beginning of his athletic training career to today, the evolution of sort of his field in, in two sort of different ways. One, the knowledge of the athletes themselves and how they take care of themselves, but also two, you know, the way that they treat athletes, not only, you know, on all levels, his was mostly at the high school level, but on all levels, how they treat athletes has continued to evolve. Do you see that same thing, I guess, from athletes themselves, knowing themselves and, and the care that they can get and to how you treat them, has that evolved? Yeah, I don't, th I mean, I think from a surgical standpoint, I mean, we're constantly striving to improve surgical techniques and, you know, do a lot of minimally invasive things, arthroscopic surgery. I mean, that's probably the biggest shift over time has been from traditional open surgeries that took a long time to recover to now more arthroscopic, you know, things that maybe don't, you know, quicker recovery, more anatomic reconstructions, but they're still, you know, there's still healing timelines that I can't affect, you know, like the body's going to take a certain amount of time to incorporate an ACL graft. And unfortunately I can't necessarily speed that up, but um, I think from the patient's side, you know, I, I do think the, you know, probably the biggest shift is what I see at the young age is people kind of migrating away from football. Um, you know, that's football is from an orthopedic standpoint, you know, where we cover all the football games on Friday nights and it's required that there's a physician or provider at the game because it's the most likely that somebody could get injured. And I do think as society has changed, as things have changed, that people are maybe, you know, staying away from football a little bit more because of those risks, concussion risks. Now that, you know, even when I was probably early in my training, you know, a concussion was still poo-pooed a little bit, you know, it was something where, oh yeah, that person got their bell rung and you move on. Whereas now it's taken very seriously. You know, when I first started practice, um, you know, we were as physicians were kind of there to be the backup for the athletic trainers, you know, a, a student athlete would get a concussion, couldn't do anything. And the coach is like, let's get him back out on the field. Mm. And, you know, they're yelling at a, you know, 24 year old athletic trainer. Now, you know, we were the kind of there to be like, no, that person, he can't go back. Nowadays, it's not even a question. They don't even give us any, you know, they recognize, yeah, this is something we got to take serious. That guy's not going back in at all until they're cleared from a concussion protocol. So, um, you know, I don't know that I would say football is a dying sport by any means, but I definitely think people are maybe rearranging priorities somewhat there. Yeah, and I, I would, I, I certainly see that too. I mean, even being, I, you know, we both have children. I have a son who's, who's two years old and I grew up, I grew up in a football family. My father played football. I played football. My brother played football. We watched football on Saturdays. We watched football on Sundays. And I sort of thought of it as a foregone conclusion that my son would play football if I ever had one. And now, you know, there's a rethinking of that in some ways because of a lot of the things that you mentioned. And I guess that brings up the question is, you know, from an athletic perspective and all that you've dealt with is how does that really break down from a sports perspective? It's football, you know, you see more injuries in football, or you see it in, in basketball and baseball. Yeah, I mean, I think you, certainly there's larger volume of students playing football, you know, so you've got a larger number of guys on the team. Um, so that's going to increase the potential risk of getting hurt. Um, but we certainly have busier 
you know, I would say more injuries coming out of football than other seasons. You know, I, it, it's pretty typical, like surprisingly basketball's not real high. You know, we get ACL tears occasionally, you get some things, but for the most part, that's, um, you know, sprained ankles, but, you know, football, we see more knee injuries, ACLs, multi-ligamentous injuries, you know, shoulder dislocations, fractured clavicles, shoulder separations, you know, pretty frequently. And then things kind of die out during wrestling and, you know, basketball season. And then Although I did just see the, uh, there was a kid from Iowa or something that just recently won a national championship who had a torn ACL and he did it at the beginning of the year. It was like, I'm, it's my senior year. I'm going to finish this out, which is kind of amazing. No, that's cool. But yeah. And then like, you know, baseball, it starts at the beginning of the year. Everyone's, you know, beginning of the season, elbows are hurting, shoulders are hurting, but there's not a lot of, you know, baseball injuries tend to be overuse. Um, you know, um, soccer is probably the other realm where we do see a lot of knee injuries, you know? So I think as soccer grows in popularity, um, we will, you know, that, that volume will kind of catch up if the football things go down, but mm-hmm. football certainly the main driver for injuries into an orthopedic practice. Right. Which makes sense. You know, and you, you mentioned baseball. I had seen recently, you know, and I had a friend in high school that actually went to Dr. James Andrews who, who when he hurt his, his shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had seen recently more evolved where there are kids that are in high school that are big prospects that are getting what they call preventative Tommy John surgery to to fix those things before it would even become an issue have you seen that come up i mean i've heard anecdotally stuff like that i mean i, I find that that they're doing that any doctor is doing it preventatively to be probably not true um you know at least somebody that you know knows what they're doing that does a high volume of them you know because it's such a it's one of those things that's not necessarily a difficult operation um compared to some other things it has a lot of prestige. It has a lot of aura. It has a lot of, you know, talk in the media, but it's not something that's super predictable in terms of returning back to play. And, you know, I advise my middle school athletes, my high school athletes all the time. I'm like, you know, for a professional athlete that's getting paid a lot of money and has the best training staff on earth, the best facilities on earth, you know, it's still going to take them probably 18 months from their surgery before they're back throwing a baseball at that same level. If they get back, then, you know, then there's a good percentage of them that do not, you know, we know once somebody has had two of those surgeries, it's, you know, less than 50% chance they're ever throwing a baseball again. So it's really not something you want to have done when you're young, you know, you, you want, I tell kids all the time, I'm like, we want to get you through middle school and through high school without even having to think about that surgery, because if you're having it now, it's going to be hard for you to probably get to a point at a major league level where you're actually pitching. Yeah. And that's what make, was so, make a this was so stark to me when, when seeing things like that of, it seems that if you could avoid being cut open and, and to, to have that work, it would be, the smarter route to go. Right. And it's one, I mean, the, the ulnar collateral ligament, the UCL or Tommy John is it's, you know, it's not something you need to breathe. You don't need to have it to live life. Frankly, you don't really need it unless you throw a baseball for a living. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty specific realm of injury and for a specific subset of patients. um, It's just, you know, I think that's where you need 
to get multiple opinions and make sure you're seeing somebody that's comfortable with that procedure and knows what they're doing. And, um, you know, that if you then have the resources to actually do the rehab and recover from it. You know, you, we mentioned earlier, you focus, you know, a lot of times in, and from our conversations in the past on, on shoulders and, mm-hmm. and knees and those, are those the, what do you see the highest volume of in your practice today? Yeah. I mean, my practice is mostly shoulder and knee. So I'm, I'm taking a wide variety of, you know, from sports injuries, young athletes, you know, middle-aged weekend warriors, but also, you know, elderly populations and things. So I'm doing joint replacements of the shoulder complex, shoulder replacements and revisions, you know, knee replacements, but then, you know, most of the other stuff is all arthroscopic surgeries from a shoulder standpoint, we're doing, instability surgery, which is labral repairs and slap repairs and things for dislocations. And then, you know, rotator cuff repairs at usually a little older age population. Uh, And then knee tends to be your meniscus injuries, ACL reconstructions, and then complex cartilage surgery. It seems that from when we were younger, you know, when I was younger, several people that I was in high school, even in college would tear their ACL and it was it was sort of devastating, right? It was, it could be career ending. And today, just on the surface, it doesn't seem as, as that is the case. And I mean, when do you see that? And two, why is that? Has, has technology that you use evolved, the standard of care evolved? Or why is it that people, we see people, and maybe it's not true. Maybe, maybe we, the, you know, the Adrian Peterson coming back is an anomaly, but has that changed from a technology or how you approach that perspective to get those athletes back faster? I think there, there's definitely you know, different techniques and some of the ACL reconstructive paradigm has shifted over the course of time where, you know, the traditional way it was done. Now it's probably done in a little bit more anatomic way through a little bit different manners. But um, the reality is it's, you know, with a torn ACL, you're going to be at risk to re-tear again. And even with a reconstruction, there's a percent of those patients that are going to have um, a re-tear, re-injury. And we know from literature and studies that patients just, there's a subset of patients that just can't return back to the same level. So a lot of studies will look at, you know, you hit ACL reconstruction, what percent are getting back to, you know, participation at that same level. So there's, there's always, and if you're looking at professional athletes, which are easier to study, cause it's usually, they're kind of a captured population and it's easy to get them for follow-up. You know, if you're, if only let's say 20% of them are not getting back to sports at the same level they were before um, for a normal person, like you or I, it's probably even less likely um, just because they, yeah, they've got all the top things from a rehab standpoint, you know, life gets in the way cost certainly gets in the way. Like medical care is, you know, extremely expensive and it's kind of stupid how expensive things are. So those are the barriers that, you know, for my patient population in middle school and high school, I was like, yeah, it'd be great if they could be in doing, you know, therapy every day. But some of these, you know, families have hundred dollar copays per visit, you know, like that's a lot of money for something. So they're maybe not going to get the elite care that a pro, a pro athlete would, but, um, you know, my, there's still a fairly high risk of retear of, you know, ACLs and, you know, even after it's been done. And a lot of uh, the factors in is actually kids returning back too soon. So I've shifted my practice from, you know, trying to say, Hey, we're going to rush you back on the field as soon as you're good to being like, Hey, we, you know, you need to think long and hard about if you're truly ready, you need to be strong enough. You need to have the protective strength. You need to be mentally comfortable to go out there and trust your knee and, you know, 
make these cuts and jumps um, to, so that you don't have to do this again. So I've been, I've probably in my practice, I even pushed out my return to play longer than when I started. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, me being someone who their day job is in technology and teaching technology, it's always interesting to me to see how, and that was kind of the, the genesis of that question of how it's evolved. And do you see just technology and play a big part in, in how you've evolved or do some of those things from a medical care perspective, have they stayed pretty, pretty standard as, as technology has evolved sort of around things? Uh, I, I would say things have certainly, um, I think everything's evolved, uh, you know, technologically we have, you know, again, like the surgical techniques, the things we can do, smaller cameras, more anatomic reconstructions, like, um, fixation strength, you know, we can look at, Hey, if we use this tendon, is it going to be strong? And like, what do we, do we use a suture or do you use an anchor? All the strength of these various products has improved over time. So the companies that make these devices are sort of like doing a lot to, you know, progress that field, you know, biologic medicine is something where there's a lot of promise in it. Um, there's still not a ton of literature to back it up and it's still an investigating field. And, you know, and that's in terms of using, say, stem cells or platelet-rich plasma therapy or, you know, various blood products to kind of, again, assist in healing or maybe create a better healing response or decrease scar. Um, and finding those things out for real is very difficult. You know, we can medically, we can look in a lab study and control all the variables and say, yes, this, this does this, but not this. But then when you try to move those to patient populations and do studies on them, it's very difficult. And, you know, getting, I think as more of that is done and as it gets more, you know, more data than certainly by the time my career is over, they're going to be doing much cooler things than I do now. Yeah. But, um, it is a, it's a slow moving train. Yeah. And, and in lots of fields, it's, it's a slow moving train. I would think in medicine in general, you know, one thing that I hear about or see a lot sometimes is I, I deal with a lot of AI and machine learning and, and, the ability to do in the medical field, you know, having the ability to understand sort of precedent or previous cases from larger sets of data because of that AI and machine learning. But that's one that I see most prevalently, but I, I don't know if that's actually even that useful. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't, I think there, there's definitely some AI things, but I mean, um, you know, we have, like our resources, mostly like, you know, journals. So we've got different sports journals. There's arthroscopy journals. You've got medical journals. And that's kind of your reference point for a lot of things is say, okay, they, this was produced and studied. And that's why, you know, academic medicine is very important because uh, those guys are spending time to do the research and, you know, crunch those data, crunch the numbers to get us information, to make sure that like what we're doing actually makes sense and, you know, make sure that the cost makes sense. And, um, you know, it, in theory, there's things that sound very cool and, you know, would, would you would suppose would make a huge benefit, but then if they look at it in a study and it's well done and it doesn't show to make any, you know, benefit or improvement, then it's not really worth spending the money on it. Um, and that's where, again, just over time, the more data we can collect, the more, um, you know, um, information we can glean from prior patients is, that's kind of how medicine advances. Yeah, and it's, it, it is interesting to hear that because, you know, being someone that works in technology or a lot of our listeners are sort of in the sports business field and related to that, you know, things are tested and applied a lot differently, a lot more quickly. Obviously, there's a higher threshold from a medicine perspective. But being, you know, yourself being someone that's entrenched 
in sports medicine and, and dealing with athletes at, at, at all different levels throughout your career, you know, how do you see that relationship evolving? How do you see the relationship between athletes and you know, sports medicine and, and treatment and so on evolving over the next you know, short, medium, long term? I think in general, I mean, I think it's going to always be a relationship that exists. You know, if, as long as there's sports and people are active, people are going to get hurt. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, people are going to, you know, do things and wear joints and body parts out. And that's, you know, part of life if you want to maintain your health. And um, so I think that relationship's always going to be there. Now, you know, as ultimately, I think what will probably happen is there's, you know, defined number of providers and you get to a point where, you know, people want, you know, we want coverage for this. We want coverage for that. We need, we want a doctor here for this. You know, you're going to get to a point where, yeah, there may be more PAs or mid-levels or that's where like athletic trainers play a huge role in our field because they can, you know, they're, they're able to be at practices every day. They're, they're kind of the person that's there because I can as a physician not be in the clinic, not be in the OR, um, you know, so there's only so much time in the day. So I think, you know, streamlining some of that process and, you know, getting people worked up quickly, getting imaging done quickly, you know, making sure they're seeing the right person. That's where, you know, we've got a good system in our, with our, my practice and the group we work with through the hospital where, you know, kids are getting injured or they're getting in to see us right away. We're able to communicate back to the athletic trainer. Then they can communicate with the coach and be like, okay, this, you know, athlete's going to play or not. Um, so I think as time goes on, as, you know, more, as that spreads throughout the United States, there'll be like that process will get streamlined more across. Cause there's still communities, you know, I'm in a, you know, kind of suburban small city, Asheville, but there's, you know, pretty rural areas around us that don't have the same athletic trainer coverage or physician coverage that our local schools do because it's more remote. So, you know, I think there's still underserved communities that, you know, over time, that's going to be something where there's going to need to be, you know, relationship there with medical providers. Um, long-term it's, I honestly don't know the, um, you know, again, I think as we, I think it's the role of the physician to keep up with, you know, technology and not just, you know, I wouldn't be doing my patients any favors if I was doing all my surgery today, exactly the same as what I learned in residency back in 2012, you know, so you have to be prepared and malleable and learn and, you know, going to meetings and learning new techniques and staying up on the literature um, is important so that, we can offer, you know, athletes and patients best care, you know, 20 years from now. Yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting perspective and one that, you know, it, myself and I know a lot of our listeners don't often get because it's such a, you know, ingrained part of sports and sports medicine. And we all have some relationship that, that played sports with athletic trainers, as we talked to in, in previous episodes, but also, you know, with, with the physicians that, that deal with, with athletes. So we really appreciate the time, Andy, today to, to go through those things. Can you tell us, and we'll put all this in, in, in the show notes in the description, but can you sort of tell us where to find you? You're, you said you're in Asheville, North Carolina, practicing today. Yeah, so I'm in a, a practice called Southeastern Sports Medicine and Orthopedics here in Asheville, North Carolina. We've got clinics in a couple of the surrounding communities, uh, Hendersonville, Brevard, and Waynesville, North Carolina. And um, I've got um, a website, just my name, andrewkirstenmd.com. And I do have Instagram. Yeah, on Instagram, I'm just Andrew Kirsten MD, all one word. 
Um, and yeah, I, I use my Instagram mostly as a, yeah, here's interesting cases. This is something, you know, we did show some x-rays, maybe show a, a intraoperative picture just to, you know, kind of show some of the cool things we get to see. As someone who follows that, I will say that there are really cool things and it's, it, it's really, you know, need to be able to see that side of things. So again, Dr. Kirsten, thank you very much for your time today and we appreciate all the insights. Thanks a lot, Bryce. Appreciate it.